0: friends, producer Heidi here. A quick note before today's episode. Due to some audio loss during recording, you may notice the audio being a bit choppy in a few places. We apologize and don't worry, the message of the episode still shines through. So we hope you enjoy the conversation with the Honorable Joyce Warren. <music> Greetings everyone, you're listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm the Reverend Mary Vano, and today I'm delighted we have a distinguished guest, the Honorable Joyce Williams Warren. Joyce was the first female black judge in Arkansas. She has had a distinguished career as a lawyer and judge in Arkansas, and has had a special focus throughout her career on juvenile and domestic relations cases. She's also a very faithful friend.
1: Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much. I am delighted and very honored to be a part of this wonderful podcast.
0: Well, we're going to be talking about justice today, but before we do that, I wonder if you could just tell us some of your story. How did you get to where you are today? The grace of God. Indeed.
1: Started out as a child wanting to be a dentist, went to school, went away for college, took organic chemistry, and on the last day to drop a class, I dropped that class thinking, I don't want to be a dentist. Came home, went to school with my husband, who was at Russellville, Arkansas Tech. We went to what was then LRU, which turned out to be the University of Arkansas in Little Rock. Majored in sociology and anthropology, took almost all of our classes together for years. And then when I graduated from college in the summertime, James and my grandmother and I were in her kitchen talking. And James says, let's go to Memphis and take the LSAT. I said, okay. well, I'd already applied to and was going to be a member of a class for social work because that's what you did in those days and still do when you had a sociology and anthropology degree. So I was going to be a social worker. So my grandmother said, good idea. Why don't you go take the LSAT? So James and I went to Memphis that summer to the law school admission test. And that's how I got in law school. Did not want to actually practice law at all. My husband guided my career through the grace of God. And although I balked, I eventually listened to him and applied for and got a position as a juvenile referee, which was a juvenile judge under the county system. That was when I became the first judge in Arkansas. And then that was declared unconstitutional in 1987.
0: Wait, what was declared unconstitutional?
1: That's a good question. The system of judges appointed as referees under the county judge, the county judge could be the juvenile judge, but the county judge had the authority to appoint a person to be a referee to hear those juvenile cases for him or her. And so I applied and got this And then in 1987, the system was declared unconstitutional as the Arkansas Supreme Court said it was in violation of the Constitution to set up a court under the county judge. And who was the governor at that time, appointed a juvenile justice commission. I was one of the members. We were tasked with coming up with a system on the state level for juvenile court. That was a 18-month appointment. So a few months after that, I decided Clinton to appoint me. I thought, this is what I've been doing for the last five or six years, four years, actually, and then a little more. And so he appointed me as one of the first 17 juvenile division judges in the state of Arkansas. And that's how my career began, by the grace of God and by the direction and supervision of my husband, James.
0: (laughs) It's good to have a good partner in life. I think that God often has something to do with helping us find those partners that will guide
1: us as we need to be guided. I prayed for him and got him.
0: Well, I'm glad you didn't end up being a dentist, Joyce.
1: I <laughs> don't like blood, don't like needles. I don't know what was coming over me. <laughs> this is what I know I was meant to do, and I'm very blessed to do it.
0: Not only are you blessed to do it, I think you've been a blessing to many
1: people in Arkansas. Very nice to you to I'm a servant, so I take that responsibility and role very seriously.
0: Well, onto the topic of justice. I grew up in a Christian home, as you know, but it was not the kind of tradition that emphasized memorizing Bible verses. We didn't get Bible drills when I was a kid. So I was already in college studying religion when I was required for the first time to memorize a selection of verses. My Old Testament professor picked verses that he thought were the most important for us to remember. And one of those verses was from the prophet Amos, chapter 5, verse 24, which says, "...but let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream." You've spent your career as a lawyer and a judge, and I'm curious what justice means in our criminal justice system. As a judge, how do you define what it is that
1: you are trying to achieve? Well, I preside over the juvenile division, although I, as a judge, I am able to cases I do not. But the juvenile justice system sometimes is a reflection of the criminal justice system. So justice means just behavior and treatment being fair and reasonable and impartial. And in legal terms, justice means different things to different people. When I think of justice in the legal terms, I'm thinking of who is accused of an offense or crime and found to have committed that crime. The victim wants that person to be held accountable. So when they say, I demand justice, they want a sentence that would be commensurate with what they think needs to happen. So if they feel really aggrieved, they want that sentence sometimes to be long and harsh. If they're not so aggrieved, they sometimes want that sentence to be more lenient. When you are a person who is of white privilege, justice may mean getting away with something that you should have had more accountability for doing. For people of color or people who are marginalized and on the fringe of society, justice means you perhaps were convicted of something you did not do. You were mistreated, disparaged, treated unfairly, and you had a sentence that really was not commensurate with what should have been. In the juvenile justice system, we're looking at holding children accountable, but looking at their circumstances that caused them to do what they did to bring them in contact with the system. So when we're looking at delinquents, we're looking at not so much punishment as reasons and having some rehabilitation. In the criminal justice system, you're looking more at punishment with some rehabilitation on the side. We call kids delinquents and not criminals because they are children. We call wrong people in the criminal justice system or kids who are going through the criminal justice system and treated as adults criminals. So there's a distinction between the two systems as far as terminology. We call kids delinquents if they have been found to have committed an offense that would be a crime if they were in an Arkansas under 18 for that crime to have been committed. We don't use the term sentencing. We call it disposition. But the criminal justice system means different things, obviously, to different people. But to me, justice means people accountable, making sure they understand what happened, making sure what happens is done in a fair, impartial, appropriate manner and explaining the process along the way. So what I'm understanding
0: is that the criminal justice system is a means of our society to impose consequences when people act badly and do harm to others. Yes. And what we seek to achieve is a justice that is fair to everybody, that treats people on an equal footing. And we know that that justice is not always achieved.
1: Justice is not always achieved. And as being humans, we can't always get everything right. We can get a lot of things right. Sometimes we can. And the criminal justice system, as is the juvenile justice system, is composed of so many moving parts. But only what do the things that we can manage actually help improve the criminal and the juvenile justice system.
0: What I learned in seminary was the idea that God's justice is always influenced by mercy. We read in the Old Testament, God gets angry at disobedience and injustice, but we also see a God who forgives when people repent. Really, we don't always get what we deserve then, at least not from God. In fact, when God is involved, we typically get better than we deserve. I have a friend who, whenever I say, how are you today? He always says, well, I'm better than I deserve. (laughs) Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. So justice in a theological sense is not always going to look like the kind of justice dispensed in a courtroom. And I think that's really okay. I think it would be a bad idea to give divine authority to our earthly courtrooms. But I do wonder how much room there is in our juvenile justice or in our criminal justice system to practice mercy and forgiveness. Joyce, where do you see mercy and forgiveness playing a role in our society?
1: Certainly not as much room in our criminal justice and juvenile justice system as it needs to be for mercy and forgiveness. But certainly it has a role in our society. Because mercy is compassion for someone whom another person has the power and authority to punish or harm. Just because you can do something does not always mean you should do something. Don't, as they say, kill a gnat with a cannon. You might (laughs) want to use a smaller weapon to kill that gnat. So you have to have the ability to decide when not to do something. Every decision I have made has, of course, not been perfect. And I tell the people I am a being, I am subject to frailty. This is the best decision I can make at this time based on what I determine the facts to be, the truth, and the outcome of the law. But certainly, you have to have mercy in the criminal justice system. And when we talk about the criminal justice system, I'm talking about from the first contact with law enforcement all the way through any trial and appeal. Thinking of all the things we know today, and these are some foreboding, dark times in our society. Certainly there has to be mercy when kills somebody for no reason at all. And it's obvious to anyone who has sense that there was no reason for all. Certainly there's mercy when somebody is getting ready to get shot for no reason and said, please don't shoot me. Please listen to my plea. That's when mercy, forgiveness come in. You can forgive somebody for doing something wrong, but that still does not mean they should not be held accountable for the wrong that they did. So you have to temper all of that. You look at the facts. You look at the circumstances. You determine this was, for an example, someone who stole food to take home to give to his mother and father. Should that child be locked up? Should that child go to the deepest end of the juvenile justice system? Or should that child be given some mercy and compassion to help him or her not make that decision again? Children are different from adults, but they still need to be held accountable to the extent they can for what they did given the circumstances. Children treated as adults are still different. They may be of an age where the law says they can be treated as an adult, but their makeup, their thinking, their behaviors are far different from adults. So I think there should be some room, mercy and compassion still while holding them accountable for their actions. And so it's a fine line. Judges can't just ignore their responsibilities to the law, but judges still have to have some common sense and treat people with respect and compassion and mercy. And I ask God to give me that compassion and mercy.
0: It seems to me that we're better at promoting justice in our society when we get a little bit detached from our emotions which is why the law is so useful in giving us some reasonable guidelines within which to work. Because when we try to dispense justice with anger, that's when violence gets done. But when we can step back from it, we can consider the outcome that we're looking for. As you were talking about with the child who stole a loaf of bread, what are we trying to do for this child? And what do we want to teach this child? I think consequences can certainly teach people when there's a negative consequence to a bad action. But in our faith tradition, what we know to be true is that forgiveness can be also transformative. Both can be tools through which we help transform human beings help them become better, and help equip them for functioning well in society.
1: When you have a victim, let's say a neighbor, Mm-hmm. you had a young child break the name years ago it may have been appropriate for that neighbor not to even contact any law enforcement official at all and just talk to that child's parent or guardian or whoever's caregiver and say your child broke my window would say, I am so sorry, we don't have the money to pay, but can he cut your yard or wash your other windows or do something? That's the forgiveness. That's the restitution. That's on a personal level and it goes a long way because law enforcement officers can have contact with people and give them a break, so to speak. But on the whole scheme of things, it's a minor thing, but I'm giving you a warning don't do this again because this will be the consequence next time. Some people can take full advantage of that. Those who cannot see that at all, all, they continue to do the things that get them in trouble. They not only do that, they ramp up their activities and become more violent in things that are more harmful. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones we have to worry about. Because as a judge, it's my responsibility to do the best I can to issue orders after we know their circumstances and what caused their children's behavior as best we can to help the child get back on the right path. That's the beauty of the juvenile justice system. You look at the family as a whole. I have the authority to order families to do things. I have the authority to order kids to do things. I have the authority to order certain agencies to do things to help bring the services to bear to help that family overcome some of the difficulties that cause that child to be in the system. At the same time, I'm looking at prevention Trying to keep kids out of the system because the more they come in contact with the juvenile justice system, the more likely they will be coming in contact with the criminal. And that likelihood is greater when you're talking about people of color, people who are in poverty, people who are uneducated, people who have the difficulties of trying to navigate life from day to day. And so that's what we try to do. The criminal justice system should be trying to do the same thing too. Punishment is important. Sometimes people have to be removed from society to address their difficulties and keep society safe, but everybody does not need to be locked up. Everybody does not need to be locked up for a long period of time either. And so when they come out, we owe it to them as a society to help them to further that rehabilitation. So we don't do a very good job, cut them off from voting. We cut them off from gainful employment. We never let them live down the fact that they have already paid their sentence, so to speak, to society. So we keep doing that and keep furthering the pain and despair. And then oftentimes they end up going back to prison and making a life that's worth less than it would have been if we gave them an opportunity to become fully rehabilitated and reengage in society.
0: In some ways, we make it impossible for people to really re-enter society. I think you have a hard job because I see that you have to balance the needs of the individual as well as the needs of their family, as well as the needs of the whole community. You are there to help protect our community. That's not easy.
1: It is difficult, very difficult. And you can't do it alone. No one person, no judge can do it alone. No agency can do it alone. It's a community effort on the juvenile justice side as well as the criminal justice side.
0: So what Amos says about justice rolling down like a river and righteousness like a never flowing stream, that imagery suggests to me that justice moves. Like water, our lives depend on it, and we shouldn't build dams that create reservoirs of justice only to serve certain populations. Instead, what we need to do is to let justice flow in us and through us and allow it to reach everyone downstream, too. Joyce, you are not only a judge, you are also a faithful Christian. How does your faith then influence your work?
1: I try to be a faithful Christian, yes. My faith influences my all the time, every second. Every day, whether I'm at home conducting hearings by Zoom or actually in the courtroom, I pray for knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and patience. I pray that God gives me the to discern the truth from a lie. And when people in the courtroom are raising their hands to tell the truth, I know everyone is not telling the truth. But as humans, we aren't able to tell all the time when people are being truthful or not. Some people can lie with a straight face and be so cool and calm and so credible. And some people can be telling the truth and just appear to not be credible. I sit as the jury. I have to discern whether people are being credible. And I pray for that ability to discern. And when I find people are not credible, I say it's my responsibility to determine who's telling the truth or not. I'm human. I'm doing the best I can, but this is how I see it. I know that I'm a servant of God first, and then I'm a servant of the public, and those things are quite important. As a part of what I do, I pray that I can advocate for the community to give services that people need, advocate for laws that are fair, meaningful, able to be understood, able to be carried out in an appropriate way. I pray that I can address implicit bias The bias that I didn't know I even had. Mm -hmm. Years ago, people said, what do you hate? I go, I hate prejudice. I hate bias. I hate bigotry. Of course, now we're talking about implicit bias, Mm -hmm. the inherent bias we don't even know about. We all have biases that we don't even know about. It may be looking at someone who appears to be upper class and thinking, oh, I bet they don't have any problems doing this. I bet they think they can outdo this. They can evade this. We have to look at those things and be honest with ourselves and go, I have a bias against this. Mm -hmm. I have a bias against people who sit this way or look this way or dress this way. You can't escape it. You have to look at it. You have to own it. You have to claim it. You have to do your best to get rid of it, but you have to acknowledge it. And then, when you make your decisions, you have to eliminate that and make the decision based on the facts, the law, and that particular individual. Otherwise, you are just perpetuating the things that we know are wrong. So, I pray daily. I empathize. I sympathize. I put myself in someone else's position. I explain rulings. I explain the limitation of the law. I don't talk down to the black robe disease the Robitus thinking, that because I put this black robe on, I am certainly then magically able to do what I want, say what I want without any consequences. And that's a disservice. I'm a servant, as I said again, that always is on my mind. I'm a child of God that is always on my mind. When I get anxious about making a decision, when I'm tired, when it's been a long day, when I'm not feeling well, I tell the people, you know, I have a headache now. It's been an awful day. I am not going to make this decision now because I make my worst decisions when I'm tired and not feeling well. So religion is what I live with every day. And I'm thankful to God that I'm able to use my religion in a way that accomplishes what the statute requires me to accomplish and what my duties and responsibilities as a judge require me to do.
0: Like you allow prayer to be the way that you allow God to work through you. I do. I do. And through prayer, you kind of just become aware of the importance of what you're doing, but you also both accept the responsibility given to you and step back and let God do what needs to be done. And then, you know, we all make mistakes. So when we don't do our best, we got to let that river keep flowing. <laughs> Pray that others down the road from us are going to pick up where we left off or try again next time. Those are important as well.
1: I've told my children over the years and I've told people in the courtroom countless times, we're humans, we make mistakes. As long as the mistakes are not fatal, we get to live and learn from them and do better. But we should be thankful for those mistakes so we can have the ability to learn. I've made some mistakes. One example was when I was hearing paternity cases, the beginning of paternity cases. Now we just hear the aftermath, like the modifications and child support Hear the beginning of paternity cases anymore. But I was hearing a case and I told a young woman, I said, well, you know, it's not my fault that you and he had sex and had this baby together. That's something that you did willingly. And her mother piped up. She says, Judge, she was raped. And I go, I am so sorry. So that's a lesson I learned. I will never make that same mistake. I'm going to make a difference, but I will never make that one again. So some lessons we learn a hard way. And if we're lucky, we won't make those bad mistakes again. But we're going to make some. And I'm just hopeful that I learn from mine and people who make theirs learn from theirs as well.
0: You've talked about prayer and faithfulness learning from your mistakes. How do you think citizens who don't wear the black robe, who don't sit on the bench, how can citizens be involved in dismantling those dams that prevent justice from flowing in our society?
1: I think citizens can speak out against injustices, do it in an appropriate way and then the appropriate time and setting respectfully, vote for people who are in line for offices that affect the decision-making of laws, how they're made, how they're implemented. Citizens can work in communities to improve the circumstances for people. One thing people do is to just love others. That's an obvious thing. It is so hard to do though for some people, because some people are morally bankrupt. I'm just going to be honest. They don't have much of a conscience. So citizens cannot have a mob mentality when it comes to doing something or allowing something to happen that they know is wrong. So when you know there's a flow going towards something that's not going to be a very good end, you should not be a part of that. You should stand up in an appropriate way and not be a part of that. Citizens can be kind to others, show mercy, forgiveness. Actually, just practice the golden rule. Do unto others. Be kind to your neighbor. These days, our neighbor is somebody on the other side of the world. The world is becoming smaller because of all the ability we have to see things almost instantaneously, to hear, to watch things actually as they happen sometimes. So as a good citizen, you need to vote, stand up, speak out for injustices, advocate for laws and policies that are inclusive. Think about people who don't have food to eat, don't have clothes to wear, don't have shelter, don't have affordable health care, daycare, people who are in their houses, who are elderly, who have nobody to come see them and take care of them. One person can make a difference. As we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, we see young people selling lemonade, young people doing things, making a difference as young as eight and nine years old. So one person can make a difference. And it is up to us to share the love that God has given us to share if we open our hearts and accept that love and actually give that love. Love cannot conquer everything, but it certainly goes a long way with action to conquer everything. Love alone, love is a word, but true love is action. It's practice. It's caring. It's sharing. It's acknowledging it. It's caring for people who cannot care for themselves. And we are responsible for our brothers and sisters. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. And when we don't acknowledge that, we become part of the problem. So a lot of things citizens can do on a lot of areas, run for office yourself, support someone who would be good for office, write to the editor, write to your legislators, start programs that make a difference, speak to somebody in a nice way, open the door for somebody. A lot of things we can do, just need to do them. One insignificant thing you may think is insignificant may be the most significant thing you can do for somebody to actually change an attitude and change a life.
0: Those are wonderful thoughts. I might add just one thing about listening. That's something that I'm learning about these days is listening with greater compassion, with a greater willingness to accept some hard truths that may not be my experience, but I can accept that just because something is not my experience, that it might be their experience. So listening well and being willing to engage in thoughtful
1: discourse It is very important, and it's a very important aspect of being a good judge, too. As you said, listening is very important. Sometimes we have to listen with our hearts as well as our ears. Someone can answer a question, and if you listen to the intonation of their voice or notice some of their behaviors, you know there may be more to it than meets the eye. I met so many people over the years who have told me, Judge Warren, you just don't know what you did when you issued that order for my child. You made all the difference in the world. You knew just what needed to happen. You asked just the right question. And sometimes I think it's just a gift. I don't think it is a gift from God. Sometimes I ask one question that makes all the difference in the world. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, had I not asked that, we would not have known this. And parents will say, we were back there hoping that you would just key in on that thing that you keyed in on. Communication is, you're right, it's speaking, but it's also the art of listening. And sometimes we talk so much that we don't listen. One thing that's a part of helping people when they're going through difficulties is giving them the ability to talk. Sometimes people just want to talk. And as a judge, I have to balance, you know, the fact that we've got many court hearings sometimes in a particular day, may run late. But I tell people always when I get in court and I say, I'm so sorry, we're 35 minutes late, but let me explain why. We had another hearing. It was scheduled for 20 minutes, but it took longer. And those things happen. But I am a judge who has to balance that. But when people feel the need to talk, I have to let them talk. I can't let them talk all day, but I'll say, okay, you've been talking 15 minutes. I got three more minutes and that's all I can let you have. <laughs> we will never elevate our society in the world to where it needs to be if we don't take the time to listen to people, to know that we are more alike than unalike. And we should, to make this world a better place, get to know and love our fellow human being. I mean, love as a person, we don't have to like what they did. In fact, some people who come before me would never be a person I would invite to my house for dinner or a movie, but I love them as a human being. I can't condone some of the things they've done, especially when you're talking about abuse and neglect of children, but I can sympathize with the fact that they have been traumatized sometimes as well, that they have difficulties they're going through as well, and they don't know how to do the things that would elevate them to be fit parents without the help of society. So when we get involved in their lives, I say, you know, it is not a happy place to be to sit in court and divulge your personal life and have people dig into it and talk about it. But once you do this, then you're part of the system and it's our responsibility to make sure we know as much as we can about you to help you become a better person so you can then become a better parent and give your child the, to grow up in a space and a place that will help them to be law-abiding, responsible people. So I let them know that. I don't talk down to people. I don't use big words. I talk to them and I tell them, you know, you made a bad decision. We're here to help you. Now, this is the help you'll get. This is the time the law allows you to do it. We've got a backup plan if that doesn't happen. May involve your child being adopted by someone else. That could happen, but that's not the plan now. So it should be a team approach. I'm involved when the adjudication of the trial is going on because that's not my part. I do ask questions when we get past that because it's my job as a judge because I have to issue the orders to determine what should happen. So you have to have empathy and you have to have some common sense and you have to have some forgiveness and some compassion and some mercy and a lot of patience.
0: One of those verses that my college professor had me memorize is, is still one of my favorites. This one is Micah 6:8. He has shown you, immortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Those words have endured for thousands of years because it's the kind of simple, straightforward truth that transcends time and location. When I'm overcome by just how complicated our world is, these words remind me to go back to the basics. So faith is about love that keeps moving alongside God and keeps doing the things that are required to build a better world for everyone. It's not easy,
1: though. Do you ever get discouraged, Joyce? I get discouraged a lot. Sometimes I'm so discouraged and so tired that I tell my husband and I tell God, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I just don't know that I can keep doing this because I feel emotionally and physically spent at times. But then I pray to God and just ask him to give me the courage, the energy to keep going because it comes from him. I can't think sometimes, but I have to just calm myself and thank God you're going to have to speak through me and help me to get through this day because it is difficult. It works. Then the next day I have more energy (laughs) than I could ever have imagined. And people say, Judge Warren, you are 70 years old. You've been doing this 35 years. How do you keep going? How do you not get burned out? I go, because it's my passion. God gives me the energy to keep doing what I do. Even when I think I cannot go on, I can't write another sentence. I can't hold another pencil. I can't think another thought. I can't read another line, but somehow I get to do it. But I get discouraged. What discourages me? I get discouraged by people who seem to want to go to work to, as my husband says, earn a paycheck and not do what they need to do, especially when their job is to help people. I get discouraged by war, by poverty, by injustice, by dishonesty, by people who don't have a conscience. I get discouraged by hatred. The lack of political will to do the things we need to do to give people what they need to live and prosper and make this world a better place. I get discouraged by the lack of civility to discuss things that need to be discussed, painful things that are part of our society that need to be talked about so we can have some forgiveness and some honest discourse and to do our best to make this world a better place. I get discouraged by laws that are enacted to keep people of color and people who are on the fringes of society down. I get discouraged by unnecessary killing. I get discouraged by people not taking the COVID-19 pandemic seriously. That's discouraging. I've got a list, but (sighs) I get discouraged by a lot of things. I really do.
0: Yeah, but prayer and passion keep you going. I imagine that knowing that
1: retirement's not too far
0: off doesn't
1: hurt. (laughs) You know, I thought I never did want to retire, but I think I'm going to be ready to retire because there are a lot of things that I still want to do and will be able to do, God willing.
0: Well, I imagine so. But one thing I think we all know is that you
1: never have gone to work just to earn a paycheck. Never, never. I do what I need to do to try to help this world be a better place. And I keep telling people, I cannot do this alone. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So I'm grateful to have people who are there to help me and support me and get me through those days. What brings me joy? A lot of things bring me joy. God brings me joy. Number one, prayer brings me joy. The laughter of kids who are happy brings me joy. I like to dance. I love music. I like to eat. I would like to look at nature sometimes, you know, when I was going outside more often to go to work, I would see birds and just stop and look at birds. We have squirrels, we have animals in the backyard, beauty and nature is a part of the miracle of life. And, you know, to look at a flower that blooms and just stop and think, oh my gosh, God made that flower. It's gorgeous. We should not look for happiness in things that are fleeting. You know, possessions are fine because we got to have food. We've got to have clothes. We got to have some things that we have to have to get through the day. And for people who don't have those, again, it's our responsibility to make sure that they have But to ignore the sunset and to ignore the sunrise and the birds and the looking at beetles on the ground, you know, that's just a part of nature. And it does bring you joy if you stop and let yourself think, you know, God created this, we didn't. And it's a part of what we need to do. And so to stop and take time to look at the things that are in front of us and to acknowledge that beauty brings me joy. Hugs and kisses, I just fun, fun stuff.
0: (laughs) We fail to pause long enough to see what's around us, long enough to take a hug and a kiss from a family member. Well, we're really depriving ourselves of the big picture, which is often where we find that joy.
1: And now with the pandemic, people having to social distance, we're missing those things from mothers that we really took for granted, those hugs and those kisses. It's good to be able to see people by Zoom and FaceTime and talk. But sometimes you miss the human contact of your grandchild and of your friend and, you know, saying, I love you. But human contact is important. And the things that we took for granted, we're really seeing more that we need to savor those moments and... Hope we get to the point where we can make some new memories like that.
0: I believe we'll get back to being able
1: to do those things. I do too. I do too. Keep hope alive, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Have to have that faith to know we will get through this. As my mother said, once ain't always and always ain't forever. Joyce, thank you so much for being with us today and teaching us a bit about justice and mercy. I learned a lot and I thank you so much. This was a pleasant thing to do. Different and I like it.
0: Good. Well, my joy is complete today. Friends who are our listeners, please do listen again next time. Remember that pretty soon I'd like to do a podcast that is just based on your questions. I want to be able to respond to what you're thinking about. So if you are curious about something, it can be just a trivial thing or it can be something deeper. Send me an email, mvano at org. I'd love to know what you're thinking about. And we'll make a podcast out of all those questions. So remember to listen again next time because R-J-O-Y is not not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soul, our producer.